0: Yeah, it's good to see you again, Gary. I'm glad to talk. <laughs> <sighs> God, what a week. Yeah, 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 Once I saw that the story came out, the follow-up, I was like, oh, we got to talk about this. Like, we got to see what's going on here.
1: Yeah, it was really interesting the last time we were down there.
0: Um, when was the last time you went down there? Uh,
1: November. It was November. Mm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: because this, this was the first time that we'd, like, gone in and identified as reporters and asked a lot of the store workers questions. Because mm. I think one of our big questions had been, like, do they know? Do they know what they're selling, you know? Yeah.
0: That makes a lot of sense. All
2: right. We're going to go ahead and just say our names and then Ro will introduce you and we'll kind of get going. All right. Sounds good. You're listening to the TripSitter podcast, where we demystify substances, break down the science behind them, and discuss the crazy world of psychedelic culture. Like having a TripSitter watch over your experience, our goal is to provide guidance and support in preparation for your psychedelic journey. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the trip. Hi, I'm James, and I'm a contributor for TripSitter.
0: I'm Rowan, and I am also a contributor for TripSitter. And our guest today is Carrie Blackinger. Carrie is an investigative journalist with the LA Times, whose main beat is covering the realities of mass incarceration and sharing the stories of people who are set to be executed by the state. Today, however, we're here to discuss Carrie's work investigating counterfeit medication in Mexico over the last year with some pretty fascinating findings. Thank you so much for joining us today, Carrie. We really, really appreciate you taking the time out of your very crazy schedule to talk about
1: this. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, good to be here. Glad to talk about this. It's been a crazy past year of investigating
0: yeah. yeah, it seems super crazy. Like, with the Adderall shortage and all the various things going on that kind of play into this factor, my first question that I really want to know is what initiated this investigation and what brought you to Mexico in the first place?
1: Um, I got a tip from someone I knew who was in Mexico and went into a pharmacy and was offered oxycodone over the counter. And she was very suspicious of that and she happened to have fentanyl test strips with her, tested it and was like, wow, this is fentanyl. Mm-hmm. So from there, we ended up hitting a story, going down, testing some things initially just with test strips and we decided to also test some of the ADHD meds and that's how we ended ended up finding a number of painkillers that were actually FENT and a number of ADHD meds that were actually MAP. At the same time that we were starting on this story there was also a team of researchers at UCLA who did some limited testing in four cities in the northwestern part of the country and they were using FTIR and getting you know the same results that we were getting with test strips. Now we later got access to mass spec so as testing went on and we started going back and going to more and more cities we were able to get more granular results than like yes this has Fent or no it doesn't Mm -hmm. you know which is interesting because like I think if we'd had mass spec access from the beginning I suspect we would have found an even higher percent of things that were counterfeit because there were some Mm -hmm. things that I sort of in retrospect suspect were counterfeit but didn't come up as being either Fent or Meth Mm -hmm. and I think it would have been interesting if we had that from the beginning but even so even though we didn't start doing mass spec until the third trip out of like eight or nine we still found that 62 2% of the painkillers and the ADHD meds overall were counterfeit. We did test a few non-controlled things, but we had limited ability, some of the things we couldn't test for various reasons. So out of the things that would be generally considered like narcotic-controlled substances in the US, those were 62% fake. And actually, when I say 62%, that also includes some of the benzos that we tested, because we also tested some of those. Wow. But generally, the Adderall was the most likely to be fake. It was about 90-ish percent of that was not legit. Mm -hmm. 60 or 70% of the opioids were not legit, depending on whether you're talking about hydrocodone-based ones or oxycodone. The benzos we did very limited testing on and half of the Xanax that we tested was not real, but I don't think that's representative. I think that's kind mm. of a fluke because we were more likely to test Xanax if there was something that was suspicious about the way that it was packaged, you know, because we weren't really focusing mm. on that. And when we found Xanax that was not legit, it was just nothing at all. It was not like fentanyl or something wow. stronger. It was just nothing. That's interesting, yeah. So, yeah, in broad strokes, that was the overall takeaway. From 114 controlled narcotics, we got 62% that were counterfeit in eight cities over the course of 10 or 11 months.
0: Wow. that's for, for people listening who don't know what the two different kinds of tests that you just mentioned are, FTIR and mass spec, could you just break down a little bit of what the difference is for people listening uh, about uh, nope, why I one can't. is more useful? <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. not a
1: scientist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the difference that mattered to us Mm -hmm. is that the mass spec is a a little less sensitive Mm. and it doesn't have as large of a library of substances. So Mm -hmm. there are some substances that we could, you know, potentially get results for on an FTIR that we could not on a mass spec but you know the big advantage was that this allowed us to get more than just yes no fentanyl yes no meth this would actually identify additional substances which is how we found that like one of the pills that was sold as an opioid painkiller was uh, actually heroin and one of the things that was sold as Adderall was actually MDMA mm-hmm. Whoa. so wow. that was how we got some of these other things that wouldn't have just come up in the test strips
2: yeah well what I will say about these cuz i just looked up FTIR on the off chance that i've ever come across it and i have not so i also have <laughs> no idea what that is. But one thing I do know is that they are all complex and time intensive and often very expensive too. They're they're kind of hard to get into. So that's really incredible.
1: One thing with the FTIR is that the UCLA researchers were the ones that had access to FTIR because they mm-hmm. had a portable FTIR machine. So they could just take it with them. Oh, um, that's awesome. And they actually do uh, twice a week, I think it is. In LA, they have a thing where they go to a place where people distribute, you know, safe drug use supplies. Mm-hmm. And they set up their little FTIR. And if you want to bring your drugs to be tested, you can come get your stuff tested. That's so And cool. it's that same team, some of that same team that uses that portable FTIR for that had been involved in some of the work in Mexico when they were doing their testing before. Wow. So yeah, it's really neat and you know pretty quick like you don't have to you know send it off to a lab yeah
2: no that's but, great yeah. so that's a really incredible personal connection to the story that the whole thing that kicked this off was an experience with your friend and they're having come into contact with that counterfeit and illicit market how quickly were you able to kind of get support for an investigative report of this did you make a couple of trips on your own before you were able to kind of like get the story off and going or was it pretty quick hit the ground running
1: so i I got this tip when I was still at my last job at the Marshall Project, (laughs) and I knew that this was not a Marshall Project story, so I called Connor Sheets, who was a friend, and he was already at the LA Times and had been there for about a year doing investigative work, and uh, I was like, hey, I'd start in late January, I think is when I started, end of January of 23, Um, Mm -hmm. and I have this really good tip. I don't know if we can really sit on it for, you know, four weeks or whatever, so, like, if you want to start investigating this, have at it. And he was in the middle of another series then, an investigative series that he he was working on. So he was like, no, 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 I'll wait for you. I'll try to run it up the flagpole and like get it approved so that we can do this. And um, then when you start, we can go down there, which honestly, I wasn't even sure that that would be at all a possibility because I don't think I've worked yeah. at any other job that would have paid to send someone <laughs> to another country to test right. Yeah, no, that's awesome. But yeah, he had been there long enough and, you know, I think they had faith in his good work that he was able to get it approved. So when I moved to LA, I think my start date was around like January 20th or something. And I was supposed to start on a Monday. I drove from Texas, arrived on a Friday night, and we turned around and went to Tijuana first thing that Saturday morning, like, before (laughs) I technically started. So, so, like, he had to expense all the things because, like, I didn't have, like, any expense account or anything, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: But You're like, thank you, LA
0: Times. Here we go. Yeah.
1: Right? Exactly. I think the first thing I expensed ended up being basically fentanyl.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. Let's put it on the company card. It'll be fine. uh, Yeah. Yeah, what a career
2: accomplishment getting to charge fentanyl on the LA Times card. <laughs>
1: um, we did not use credit cards in any of these places. We were using well, that's fair, yeah. cash. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they didn't um,
2: take credit cards. They didn't have a little swipe. No, they do. They do. Oh, they do. Oh my God. Yeah, I mean, I they, you know,
1: these are pharmacies. I mean, that's the other thing. I don't know if yeah, you actually fair, yeah. said that. Like mm-hmm. when I say that we were yeah. testing all these substances, these are all things that we bought from pharmacies, brick and mortar mm. stores. What? Walk
2: us through like a typical experience with one of them, because you went through a few in the story that I thought were really interesting. So like, take us through what it would normally be like walking into to one of those pharmacies.
1: So, uh, you know, we would just go in and ask, do you have Adderall? Or, you know, what do you have for pain? And see what they would say. And, you know, the places that would sell you controlled things over the counter without a prescription were typically independent pharmacies, sometimes regional chains, not the large national chains. so much. Mm -hmm. Not like the biggest ones that you would see in like Mexico City or something. And they were all in touristy areas, Mm -hmm. border towns and tourist hotspots. And specifically like even in the touristy parts of town, like in Cabo for instance, or in like Cancun or Playa, like mm-hmm. if you went too far outside of the touristy area, places would look at you weird. If you asked for, you know, Vicodin or Percocet. That's
2: interesting, yeah. And they
1: would look like insulted mm. that you were even asking oh. that. Yeah, it seemed to very clearly target travelers. And in fact, we had some pharmacy workers tell us like, yeah, we won't sell these to Mexicans. And we had um mm-hmm. a few like Uber drivers and stuff who were trying to like offer to get us drugs and stuff. And they would be like, no, You can get it. I can't get this in a pharmacy, which I thought was so (laughs) interesting.
2: That's so wild. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But
1: so we would go in and we would just ask for these things and the responses varied. Like sometimes you would ask for Adderall and they would just pull out Ritalin and tell you it's the same thing. Sometimes you would ask Mm -hmm. for Adderall and they would pull out a sealed bottle labeled Adderall, but that would invariably be counterfeit because Adderall is actually not legally prescribable in Mexico, which we did not Mm -hmm. realize when we were doing this initially. It wasn't until I think after the first trip that I was like interviewing a doctor or something and realized like of course the Adderall's fake you know it, it yeah. shouldn't be legit <laughs> yeah, yeah and then the painkillers like opioids are legal there they're just very tightly controlled like more mm-hmm. so than the U.S. there's one doctor I interviewed at one point that said that when he had practiced in Mexico he wouldn't prescribe opioids because it was just too many other hoops to jump through mm-hmm. and they've never heavily prescribed oxycodone there mm-hmm. even when they are prescribing opioids Mexico tends to more commonly prescribe morphine mm-hmm. so it's never ever even been their painkiller of choice and culturally they're not as into prescribing opioid painkillers generally although tramadol is available like very easily pretty much anywhere
2: yeah which which another thing you had pointed out was that Ritalin or methylphenidate I think is what mm-hmm. it, the name and then tramadol were the only two that were consistently legitimate as well um, yeah and I, I think that's because
1: those two are so easily available mm-hmm. legally in Mexico doesn't
2: make sense to counterfeit
1: yeah but. there's just not incentive to counterfeit them whereas you know the Adderall is not legally available the opioid painkillers are tightly controlled so like there are incentives to offer something that would have to be a counterfeit <laughs> if you have a lot of travelers coming in and touristy areas and asking for these things you know and you can't legally prescribe them that would create an incentive to you know want to figure out a way that you can still make money off of them <laughs> and
0: this isn't medical tourism like this isn't people trying to get cheaper stuff like coming from America specifically specifically to get cheaper stuff. This is more like recreational use. Like, what would you define that as based on the experiences that you had there?
1: You know, I think it probably varies a little bit. I think that Mm. some of the things are clearly priced in a way that just doesn't really make sense for medical use. Mm -hmm. In a lot of places, the Adderall was priced in a manner that wouldn't make sense to use that as your sole source of getting your Adderall prescription. You know, right? I mean, I guess it's possible that if you're traveling and you walk by and you're like, oh, wow, you know, I don't have insurance coverage anyways like in that case maybe it makes sense to get like one there or something but you know they were also selling loose pills for like 30 bucks a pill like that's <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. that's street price. that's not a price that makes sense you yeah. know yeah exactly exactly yeah. it would be so much cheaper to just buy yourself some meth at that point you yeah, know
2: exactly which i guess in a lot of times you really are if you're buying the adderall yeah, so. yes
1: exactly exactly <laughs> and you know the opioids again i mean they were fairly pricey but you know you can walk into a store and get them so i i really i don't have a good sense of of like what percentage of people are using them in a medical tourist mm-hmm, sense mm-hmm. there's a lot of it in vacation spots places where mm-hmm. i wouldn't expect people are going as much for medical tourism but uh nuevo progresso which is a border town across from McAllen, texas is a big medical tourism spot mm-hmm. you know there's also a lot of people from texas that'll cross the border just to have dinner or whatever but like mm-hmm. it's not a vacation destination and no. we found counterfeits there as well so wow okay. you know it's, it's hard to guess like who the the market is that could be you know know I don't know partying teenagers from Texas or you know that could certainly also accidentally mean that some elderly person's trying to save on a doctor visit because even if the pills are expensive I guess you've got to assume that then you don't have to pay to see a doctor
0: mm, but yeah. you
1: know I, I mean one of the holes in the reporting right is that we're never going to get a breakdown of like who goes to buy these things and why yeah. which is unfortunate I really would have loved to, to get more sense of that side of things you know I also would have loved to get a better sense of how this all came about like was this store owner proactively reaching out to criminal organizations and being like hey we keep getting these requests or were the criminal organizations reaching out and being like sell this you know or mm-hmm. there's yeah. so yeah. many other variations of how this could happen yeah
0: yeah and it's like it's just another source of income like especially when you're just trying to get by if you're like oh there are people who are here that we can get to buy this and we can get it cheaper than like there's just a lot of factors that go into why someone would want to sell and buy this in the first place yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: if there's a need there's someone who's going to up to meet it, right? It's like, especially for something like Adderall, which cannot be prescribed. I mean, I imagine even just like operating a pharmacy in a tourist destination, there has to be a ton of people that arrive there and realize or intentionally didn't pack because they were worried about the laws that their medication isn't there and go to the pharmacy and ask. And, you know, I could see it being like already super appealing to a pharmacy owner to have an option there that they maybe do really believe is meth, you know, for all we know. That was another thing that is impossible for us to ever really know is how involved they are with the whole process but it's definitely interesting it kind of ties back to a cartel movement and with it not being normally found in border towns to be counterfeit it kind of sounds like maybe it's almost spilling over from like the recreational market a little bit even Mm -hmm. potentially does that seem possible or is that kind of reading something that isn't there
1: well, I guess it depends what you mean by spilling over from the recreational market. I mean, I think that some of these things were not packaged as if they would be when they were sold on the street, for instance. Right, yeah. mm-hmm. There yeah. were some very elaborate fake bottles that people buying pills on the street don't typically demand that they be in a sealed bottle, you know? Right, yeah. yeah. I think the most elaborate fake that we found was actually Vivance. Mm. It was a, a really impressive fake bottle. It didn't have any of the obvious errors that some of the other bottles had because some of them would have like Spanglish on them, or yeah. <laughs> there was one that was. It's a fake Malincroit bottle and it's spelled Malincroit mm. wrong.
2: <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, I would have to imagine the Vivance sells for higher than a lot of the other options as a name brand, right? It seems like maybe it would have the most value to put into like counterfeiting it. Was it more expensive? You before?
1: know, it w- not significantly, no. Oh, that's no. Interesting. I, don't, I don't think it was actually at all. The interesting thing with that one was I kept wondering if some of that stuff had like fallen off uh, a truck somewhere, right? Because Vivance yeah. used to be prescribable in Mexico until like 2021, at which point Shire stopped selling it there. And I, I don't know the details of oh, that. Like, I don't know. If that was a voluntary exit from the market or not, mm-hmm. but they did sell it there and they don't. So at some point, packaging in Spanish for a Mexican market existed. Mm-hmm. And I was just, you know, it was a, a sealed bottle inside a box with a little like very thin paper that folds up like a million ways like yeah, a map yeah. and provides like all of this information about the, the substance, <laughs> yeah. you know? Like yeah. that's not just like a fake piece of paper you print it out from something. Like that's a very specific, like very thin kind of paper, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. that was in there. And then there was also these little like holographic stickers on the outside of the box, which one of the clerks explained, that's how you know it's legit.
0: Yeah. <laughs> which, it, which it is. It's supposed to be
1: a tamper-proof seal. Yeah. The only thing that was visibly off on the Vivance was when I actually opened the bottle and look at the capsules and they were supposed to be 50 milligram capsules. They were white and blue, like they were supposed to be, but they didn't mm-hmm. have the little imprint on them that says like 50 milligrams. And then I think there's like four letters or four numbers. It's and like it s 54 Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's sus. Like, that seems wrong. And then, sure enough, that tested positive for math.
2: That is. So wild.
1: Yeah, I think that the prevalence of the sealed bottles was also one of the things that I think was a clue as to how organized and systematic some of this mm-hmm. counterfeiting was. And I don't know if I really got that across adequately in the story. But one of the things that was so shocking to me was in some of our last trips, we started seeing the same fake bottles in multiple places. Oh. So like there was a specific kind of like short and squat sealed bottle that said that it was Teva, you know, claimed to be mm-hmm. a fake Teva brand at and it had a weird little like styrofoam insert that I've never seen anywhere. Mm. And there were just like 10 pills in a bottle. The pills themselves were pretty well done. Orange circles that have the right imprint on them at all. Those were at several stores. And then there were slightly taller, slightly thinner sealed bottles that said Sun Pharma that were at other stores. And it was so interesting to me that we were seeing something as sophisticated as these fake bottles in like multiple different stores. And when I say, yeah. by the way, is that they're sealed fake? Like I don't, I don't know how to describe this, but it's like a, the plastic ring seal. Like it's not even mm. like just something that could have been heat sealed onto the top. Yeah. It's an actual hard plastic ring seal.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah,
1: it was just crazy. Like, and
0: so that became more prevalent. It wasn't as prevalent, and then became more, or you just started noticing more. I think
1: it was that partly that we went initially to cities that tended to sell them more as loose pills over the counter, mm-hmm. and then we started doing more reporting in cities that were selling them more by the bottle. Like Tijuana had a lot of things that were loose pills over the counter. And that was like the first city we went to. Cabo also had a lot of things that were loose pills. And I think that as we went on, we happened to be ending up in cities that were selling things more by the bottle. You know, and then I think also when we were in like Quintana Roo, when we were looking at some of the things in like Tulum, shit's fucking expensive in Tulum. Like everything (laughs) is, including the illegal
0: drugs. (laughs) (laughs) So we
1: actually didn't buy any bottles of entire like sealed bottles. In Tulum because it was extremely expensive. So it was kind of a mixed bag there in terms of where the, whether they were selling them in singles or in bottles. One of the other interesting things in Tulum, by the way, uh, and Playa and Cozumel, was they had these purple Percocets. We'd ask for Percocet, they'd give us these purple Percocets that were a very pretty shade of pill, to be honest. <laughs> um, and some of them were in blister packs from Guatemala. And those were all Whoa. legit. Those were all like actually what they were supposed to be, which um, makes sense. Like that, like that part of the country is closer to Guatemala, but it, it was so interesting. I was like, wow, I, I mean, I'm so curious about how that product gets up there. Mm-hmm. Is this individual smuggling it? Is this a large criminal organization? Like, how is that exactly going down? But it was in multiple places. So I, I thought that was interesting. In that part of the country, we never saw anything that was fake. You know, a knockoff of the Guatemalan Percocet. But then, when we were in either Cabo or Puerto Vallarta, on the other side of the country, several months later, we actually did find one place that was selling, I think, Lucies of the individual things, purporting to be those like purple Percocets, and those were fake. But overall, oh. none of the stuff that we bought anywhere in a blister pack came out fake. That's
0: interesting. I
1: think blister packs are just a lot more effort to counterfeit. That fake. makes Like, sense. why would you put it in a blister pack if you can put it in a bottle? And
0: like <laughs> people, like people aren't unless you are an investigative journalist specifically going down to be looking for these fake medications, you're not going to know the difference. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Right. Exactly. I think in a lot of situations, obviously if you're dealing with something that has fentanyl in it, you know, sure you run a a risk of overdose, but many people are taking these and, you know, not actually dying. So, you Mm -hmm. know, in most cases, you might feel like something's a little off, but you won't actually die. And your biggest problem might be if you have a drug test for work or something, you know?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. So like the most benign possibility would just be like cartel presenting these as legitimate to business owners and maybe either intimidating or fooling them into believing it. And then the more like deep state approach would be like basically cartel run pharmacy options throughout there. But did you feel like when you came across legitimate medications, were they often next to or sold along with ones that were illegitimate? Or was it like the legitimate ones were mostly like, okay, you can probably trust that pharmacy? Was it kind of like a crapshoot? It was a
1: mixed bag. Mm. There was a couple pharmacies that we would ask for Oxy and they'd tell us, oh, well, we have two kinds. We have like American Oxy and then we have Mexican Oxy. And I forget which was stronger, but like one of them was fake. Yeah, (laughs) They looked identical and then one of them was fake and one was not, you know, or almost identical. They had different imprints, but you know. And I mean, there were some places we went in where they had like a tackle box or jewelry (laughs) box like filled (laughs) with different pills. And, uh, you know, we didn't necessarily buy all of them, but I suspect some Mm. of those were legit, you know? Yeah,
2: like the kind of thing you see a character pull out at a party in a movie or something. Right,
1: totally, (laughs) yeah, totally. (laughs) One of the other really baffling things was there was like two Adderall from, I think, Tijuana. It was that, you know, on mass spec, showed up as being what they were supposed to be, like dextroamphetamine and amphetamine, which is Mm -hmm. wild because since that's not legally prescribable there, that means somebody went to the trouble of like smuggling it back from the U.S.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is interesting.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was, that was so interesting to me.
0: This ties into like Catherine Ebon's book, Dangerous Doses, which is all about like counterfeiting medication and those operations that are like stemmed both from cartels and from pharmaceutical manufacturers themselves and how that like the different layers of distribution and manufacturing and like how that all plays into it. Were you finding like brand name stuff and generic stuff were having the same rate? Like you were talking about Vivance being the most like well done fake. But at the time when you were looking down, there wasn't a generic Vyvanse yet, right?
1: Right. We didn't see anything purporting to be generic Vyvanse. On the Adderall, I mean, none of it's legal. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, and, and again, like something like 90% of the Adderall was was fake. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes we would ask for it and get a bottle that was labeled as dextroamphetamine and was, of course, meth. And sometimes we would ask for it and get a bottle that was labeled Adderall, even if it was labeled as also being a drug maker that does not make name brand Adderall.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like Teva um, and uh, and Sun. Like, those are generic Adderalls, absolutely.
1: Right, but... and I don't remember if the Sun one was labeled as Adderall, if it was labeled as Dextro. Uh, I think I might have it here on my phone somewhere. My phone is basically just full of pictures of
0: them. <laughs> okay, That's so cool the sentence. Sun
1: bottles... <laughs> were labeled as being Adderall. That's interesting. Like, it says, like, the word Adderall, which is obviously they don't make name brand Adderall.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah.
1: And that was also the one that had some interesting Spanglish on it because the Sun Pharma bottle says Adderall tablets, and then it says dextroamphetamina, Mm -hmm. which is the Spanish word for dextroamphetamine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And then most of the rest of the bottle is in English, although there's a couple words here and there in Spanish. So, yeah, I mean, with the Adderall, it was sort of equally likely to be fake either way. With the opioids I'd have to sort of look through all of my notes and pictures a little more closely but think that most of the things that were labeled as being oxycodone or that were sold to us as being oxycotton were not legit. I know we got some things that were like endocodal which is a you know Mexican brand for it and I don't remember how many of those were fake or not. You know, the other thing is sometimes we're asking for a medication and they're pulling out a single pill. So like who, mm. who knows what that bottle yeah. would or would not have purported to be. You know, and then there was one case also where we asked um, oxycodone and they gave us a bottle that was labeled oxycodone, but actually contained Basically, mucinex, pills with the ingredient in mucinex. and it was a pretty good fake too.
2: Get so the decongestant effect,
1: right? <laughs> it was yeah. like a pretty good fake too. Like it was sealed and all. And that same place sold us a bottle of what they claimed was Adderall that was actually Clobenzarex, which is a weaker stimulant used as an appetite suppressant. Yeah, yeah. that's
0: yeah. crazy. You mentioned the fake Vyvanse didn't have pill stamps. Were there, like, pills rather than capsules that had, like, accurate stamps on them?
1: Yes, um, many of the Adderall did.
0: Hmm. Fascinating.
2: Yeah, the, they were the tablet form or... Did you find any XRs for the Adderall, or were they all tablets?
1: So they were almost all tablet, but in Tulum or Playa, we got some things that were in capsules. I would not go so far as to say that those were intending to be XRs because they looked <laughs> fucking ridiculous. They did not look like <laughs> any. They looked like, like vitamin.
2: Yeah. No, no, really, though. Really, it oh, was yeah. like
1: it was like the big capsules that <laughs> that are literally like I googled them and I was trying to google the description to figure out what these things are actually used for and. Um, they you know, are commonly used for antibiotics. And wow. one of them, I think was the, I, I think one of those might've been the one that was MDMA, but I, I don't remember for sure. It was in that round of testing. But the crazy thing was we got two of those capsules from two different places. One of them had a powder inside that was like green and another had a powder inside that was brown in the oh, same well, capsule from two different stores. Yeah. And I was like,
0: No, that
1: does not inspire. <laughs> Confidence.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, it certainly does
2: yeah aside from that purported Adderall that wound up being MDMA, which I guess you could make an argument that that's an amphetamine, so it's kind of similar. Did you find that all of the others were like pretty similarly trying to mimic the effects, like fentanyl for opiates and methamphetamine for the stimulants and stuff like that?
1: In most instances, yes, but but not always. Mm. You know, we found things that were supposed to be uh, hydrocodone or oxycodone that were actually tramadol, heroin, fentanyl. We might've found one that was nothing. And then, you know, you know one that was X. so obviously mm. that's not mimicking any effects um yeah, but but generally yeah they were typically at least things that would be mimicking the effect of the intent of what the person thought they were buying and you know same thing with the adhd medications it was most frequently meth but in some cases i mean in two cases it was actually what it was supposed to be and in one case it was you know mdma and in a couple cases it was clobenzorex there was some really interesting combinations like i think there was one that had like like meth and caffeine in it, which seems mm. extremely unnecessary. Yeah,
0: really. it's
2: like a not a fun night for sure.
0: <laughs> but, like, but like, I guess undercutting the cost. Like, caffeine's probably a bit cheaper than meth to get, and so yeah. combining that to get like fill out the pill. I, I feel like the for only a cartel, theory.
1: the meth is so dirt cheap. Why bother to put anything else in it? That one was yeah. just true. Like you're a at very wholesale, you know. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Did you get any information on like the dosages that were in there at all? Like, did you? Find no, we were... did
1: not have access to quant testing mm. i know that
2: that's like extremely hard to come across that's actually the one i think i was thinking of that takes a really long time but yeah
1: yeah i also think there would have been some logistical problems in terms of just how to like get it to a lab because then you need to bring yeah. like an entire pill or whatever yeah so that would have been i think logistically challenging I would have been so curious about that, though. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder what a criminal organization has determined is the equivalent of 50 milligrams of Vyvanse. Yeah,
2: Yeah, really? Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out if... Yeah, I don't know. It's difficult because it's like on one hand, like there are a lot of similarities in the effects between like meth and like Adderall. Um, But on the other hand, like that's only if you have a small amount of meth. (laughs) And so if you have like a large amount of meth, it's going to feel quite different.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I I mean, I would... imagine they're probably pretty good at dosing the i think the issue would be like the consistency i don't know what their Mm -hmm. pill pressing process is you Mm -hmm. know
0: well if they have the stamps wouldn't it have to be like a machine that is about correct for a pharmaceutical manufacturer like the same standard i guess
1: yeah i just don't know a lot about the process like does one take Mm -hmm. all the filler and all the active ingredient and mix it all up in a big powdery bowl like flour like (laughs) you know what i mean and and like if, if that's the method they're using then how do you assure that it's like well distributed? Or are you putting like filler into the molds and and then going and like putting a specific, like I have no sense of how this is done either on pharmaceutical scale or in, you know, some laboratory. So I I don't really have any sense on what their quality control processes in terms of like making sure the dosing is consistent. But yeah, that would have been interesting. Of course, I'm also interested in doing some quantitative testing on uh, U.S. prescriptions as well. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> We are also very interested in you pursuing that investigation. <laughs> yes, yeah,
2: that's that's something that we definitely have heard a lot about. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's just so interesting because you mentioned that some pharmaceutical manufacturers shut down and it sounds like there's just been some leftover like gear from production that has somehow been repurposed or something like that. But that's obviously speculative, you know, who knows, but that's just so wild. Um,
1: It's it's so interesting what some of the responses have been to this online Um, mm. because it's been, I I think it's been split between people telling me I'm wrong and I don't know what I'm doing, that meth and adderall are the same you know how many oh you know obviously I mean? of course oh my God, you know how many TikToks i've made to explain that they are chemically <laughs> not the same thing like i feel like i just yeah. have to make like redo that video like every week um, Yeah, yeah and then you know there's people that are telling me i'm wrong and then the people that are saying you know duh what did you think of course it's not legit and i was like wow the two different ends of the spectrum here yeah yeah, yeah. Really. i think that the, the thing is that like i mean people obviously love to just act like they know everything and duh of course you should have known this when they're mm. talking to people on the internet but like the reality is your average traveler who goes to another country has probably not memorized the list of what substances are legally prescribable there mm. and what is or is not allowed to be sold in a store and we take for granted mm. i think that as much as regulatory agencies are a problem here like they do actually provide some baseline level of quality control like mm. we can hate yep. on the fda and i'm sure we will we'll probably get to that um <laughs> <laughs> but uh they do provide some baseline line level quality control at least to the point that Americans are used to being able to go into a pharmacy buy a prescription medication or buy a medication over the counter even and know that it is not Fentanyl. like the, mm-hmm. the bar is pretty low right but like yeah that they, they do we do at least have that expectation so i think that it's not unreasonable to think that if you as an american go to another country and purchase things in a pharmacy like you just take for granted that like the things you're being sold are allowed to be sold and that you know they don't contain something that might kill you and you know is that a valid assumption like should you do more research like sure but i think that people sort of discount the like the fact that when you travel you don't remember a list of what is controlled or available in another country. And mm-hmm. so I think that people have been very quick to sort of point a finger about like, oh, people shouldn't be buying these things and blah blah blah. But um it's also completely to me, it's completely understandable why someone might go to another country, see geez, this thing is offered and just be used to thinking like, oh, it's probably fine. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well absolutely and you know, like let's follow the thread of it being a known secret or whatever. Something else that you covered is that the government has known about this for a long time and there's not exactly been a whole lot done about it. And so it's left up to journalists like yourself to inform the public, like, hey, like, this is a real problem of things that are happening. And like, we're not exactly doing anything about it. So can you talk a little bit about some of those things that you brought up in the article in terms of how this is something that we've kind of known about and and not necessarily addressed?
1: Yeah, that was kind of surprising to me. After we did the first couple stories, we found someone whose son had overdosed and died from a fentanyl-tainted pill that they bought in a pharmacy in Cabo. And wow. the family had told the DEA at the time, and the DEA had investigated, although um, I think they took issue with whether that would be considered an investigation, but they asked questions mm. at any rate. Mm-hmm. This was at least on their radar as early as, I think this incident happened in like 2019, might have been 2020. Mm. We came across a number of cases like this, so like the, the exact dates are sort of blurring together at this point, but it's been a number of years that the DEA had been aware of this. And it was just surprising to me that they didn't publicize it more because even if it was a one-off and they didn't decide to go back and see if they could replicate it at other pharmacies, like, you know, I don't know. As much as the DEA has zealously put out misinformation or sort of hyperbole about Mm -hmm. any fentanyl-related threat, it was so wild to me that they would be aware of this one and not bother to you know tell the public. And I I feel like I never fully understood why that is. like they'll put out all these press releases about rainbow fentanyl, or like people putting fentanyl on your kids' candy, or claiming that you can overdose from touching it. Like just some yeah, of these a things cop just will
0: die if you breathe on right, them with fentanyl. Yeah. Right,
1: <laughs> like some of these things that are just like just not factual at all, you know? Yeah. And then when this happened and they didn't publicize it, I I just never fully really felt like I understood that. Like. It, I never felt like I grasped a reason why that was, like, something they felt they needed to do politically. Like, mm. putting aside, like, was that a, a good reason or not? I just couldn't even figure out what the reason was, you know?
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, it could have yeah. just
1: been incompetence. I could, you know, mm. just, I, I mean, I could just be overthinking it. But um, that was always surprising to me that they didn't put out anything sooner. And eventually, after we started reporting on it, the State Department put out a stronger warning for travelers in Mexico. Yay, journalism
0: holding people accountable. Thank God. <laughs> um. Well,
1: now there's so, a warning. So, you know, yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Right?
0: (laughs) But for, for folks who are still, like, going to Mexico for various reasons, how should people, like, doing this keep themselves safe? Because we don't demonize recreational drug use right. by any means on this podcast. Like, mm-hmm. how do people just keep themselves safe?
1: I mean, I think you you want to bring test strips so you know, like, what it is that you're dealing with. Um, yeah. But, I mean, if you're trying to avoid things that are counterfeit, then I would stick to things that are in blister packs and mm-hmm. ideally from, you know, major drugstore chains. Mm-hmm. Like I said before, none of the tramadol or Ritalin that we tested was counterfeit. I mean, I'm sure some of it somewhere is, but at the least, I think we can say that it's less common to counterfeit those because we didn't encounter any yeah. um, mm-hmm. so nice. i mean that's some of the things i would stick with but if you're going there intending to get something that contains like meth or fentanyl then i mean your biggest gamble is just i i don't think anyone has a sense of what the dose is yeah
2: mm. <laughs> start with half And have a friend (laughs) nearby. (laughs) Oh, and bring your own
1: Narcan. Narcan is not easy to find in in Mexico. I think it was really that's interesting. Yeah, I think it was actually not legal, or else not legal outside of medical settings until like fairly recently. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're not gonna walk into one of these stores and find Narcan next to that, uh, you know, opioid that's actually fentanyl. So um, that's
2: interesting. Yeah. So yeah, bring your own Narcan. Okay. So I mean, like, what could we even do about this? Like on a governmental scale, is there anything outside of a warning, really, that we could do. I mean, the Mexican pharmaceutical industry has been something that Americans have been using for a long time now, um, basically just ever since our healthcare system has been broken, which has been a really long time. Um. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, outside of greatly improving our own healthcare system so that people don't necessarily have to do that, is there any kind of solution to this?
1: I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I feel like I don't have a good answer to that in part because I don't really, I don't think any of us knows the scope of what the DEA or the FBI or the CIA could potentially do in response to this. Because presumably mm-hmm. some of the ways in which they might respond would be things we would never know about publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And, <laughs> you know, given that we've said we're not demonizing drug use on this podcast i mean i think that the sort of corollary to that is that the the best thing here is is knowledge like if you at least Mm -hmm. know what you're getting and know what precautions that means you need to personally take in response that's probably the only thing that is really on the table as likely to occur at this juncture Mm -hmm. um you know mexican authorities did some raids on pharmacies but i think most of them have reopened and Mm -hmm. several that we went to said that they had had inspectors come there or that they'd been raided and that they did not even take any pills for testing so like if you're not oh. if you're not testing things i don't know what you think you're accomplishing
2: performance um, it's just yeah. theater yeah. yeah yeah yeah
1: so you know given that there doesn't really seem to be any indication that this is going to stop i mean this is just about awareness and, and figuring out what cautions you would want to take in response and what medications you would or would not buy given their likelihood of being legitimate you know i i think a lot of people have also asked in the comments on some of my tiktoks What about like other medications, things like, you know, Viagra or Metformin or antibiotics? And we did do some testing on some of those. All of the Viagra and Cialis was at least the correct active ingredient. That's Um, funny.
0: That's really funny, actually.
1: (laughs) Well, those things are pretty readily available, but... The other thing I started thinking about is, the, I think those are kind of like harder pills to fake in some ways. Mm. Both Viagra and Cialis have a very distinct shape. So you can't use mm-hmm. it on your regular circular pill press, right? Like yeah. those have a very distinct shape. They also have a coating and an interior. And mm. most of the pills that they're faking did not have a coating. Like Adderall doesn't have a coating. You know, it's just mm-hmm. a pressed orange pill. Whereas if you think of something, when I when I say a coating, I'm thinking of like old school oxycotton that had like the, the, mm-hmm. the coating it on the outside that you would like mm-hmm. scrape off and there's the white pill underneath yeah. you know viagra and cialis are both pills that have a coating which is just an extra step in the faking process and if you can already get this uniquely shaped pill with a coating on it you can already just get it pretty easily legally i think that really minimizes the value of faking it yeah so those came up as legit and then there were some things that we tested that just turned out not to be in the like library of substances that our testing methods could get like we did good. we could we couldn't get an- we couldn't do antibiotics. So like, oh. we don't know if, if those were legit. Um, And uh, Ozempic, we also didn't have any testing method that could tell us if the Ozempic was legit. Like it wasn't meth, I mean, I guess we know that. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, the non-controlled things that we tested were all what they were supposed to be, but many of them we just couldn't test. And the other thing that we couldn't figure out is we don't have quant testing yet. If we get quantitative mm-hmm. testing, I would love to revisit some of these things because there's some stores that sold us enough creative variations of fake control medications that I'm just really curious what the strength of some of their other medications was you know because
0: mm-hmm. we've also been talking about the implications about this for like American tourists the implications of this for like people living in Mexico Mexican citizens it, this is kind of real bad for them if they don't have that kind of regulatory body to kind of understand properly what it is the medication that they're taking is that would yeah that be a the, correct the assessment thing or? is
1: that I mean I think we can say we just don't know in, in those cases yeah. because you know we really focused on on pharmacies in areas that are catering to travelers because mm-hmm. you know we had aside from some limited experience visiting them a lot of indications from people who had been to different places that you can't walk into a pharmacy in like Mexico City and just ask for Adderall over the counter um you mm-hmm. you can't in even the less touristy parts of like Cancun or something so if you go to those stores that are not catering to tourists I don't know if that also changes how likely non-controlled substances are to be legit or not you know Mm -hmm. like i don't know if you get it in a pharmacy in the you know touristy part of cabo is that viagra or metformin or antibiotic coming from a completely different source than if you go to the residential parts of town yeah but i just we just don't know i mean i don't know if they're both of those things are coming from legitimate pharmaceutical supply chains or not
2: yeah no i mean a team of probably 50 people could cover all the different elements of this for a year trying to figure out all these different questions that you you know still have to be because there were
0: other members of your team investigating this as well you mentioned one in the beginning but there were like a a couple of names in the byline
1: Mm -hmm. yeah for the first several months of this it was me and Connor Sheets and then as we went on we looped in a third person Brittany Mejia and she came down with us for some of the last few trips that we did
0: do you know if there are any like uh, Mexican journalists who are looking into this or are you kind of the only team looking into this right now
1: after we started there was a reporter for Vice who lives in Mexico City that did a story or two on it after after we did the first few. Um, Mm -hmm. And they actually did some testing. We haven't found any others that were doing this. I mean, I think that the risks are probably different for journalists who live in Mexico versus those who do not. That makes sense, yeah.
2: (laughs) Along those lines, what's next for the investigation? Do you have more things planned to be looking into or?
1: No, not really at this point. I mean, I think that if other things come out of this like mm-hmm. if you know i noticed for instance that there were three overdoses in 24 hours in tulum a week or two ago mm-hmm. of americans um mm-hmm. yeah. and you know i'd be interested in knowing more about the circumstances of those and whether those were from medications purchased in pharmacies and you know if it turns out that any of them were that might be a thing that we would write something about mm-hmm. yeah. you know i can imagine that there would be other sort of impact stories that we could potentially end up writing something about but we don't have immediately anything else planned uh i I think it's possible that if we had adequate access to quantitative testing, I would love to do some quantitative testing on ADHD meds here mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. because that was a thing that we were asked about a lot. You know, we had a lot of people saying, like, oh, why are you testing meds in Mexico? I don't think my meds here are full strength. Yeah. And uh, we, you know, we didn't have any access to quantitative testing to, to look at that. We did test to see if they were, you know, what they were supposed to be. And, you know, all the things we tested were the right substance in the US, yeah. but mm-hmm. uh, we just couldn't meaningfully test the strength. So that's mm-hmm. one thing that interests me. I'd also be interested in trying to figure out a way into looking more at the non-controlled substances in Mexico because we only did pretty limited testing on those, but I'm not sure that mm-hmm. that's realistic. I don't think that's very likely to happen at this point. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think we're mostly done with it. That's fair.
0: How in general, like in your, your reporting in general, also like kind of trying to find that quant testing, but the other reporting that you're doing, how can like people in general support your work and your journalism that you're doing? What is the most beneficial thing besides just reading and sharing the work that people can do to like support the truly very very essential work that you're doing
1: Mm. Um, well, you know, I think like reading and sharing, I think, you know, tweeting about good, valuable reporting when you see it, I think can help individual journalists in terms of getting their editors to sign off on things or to understand that this is something that readers want to see. You know, I think those things are helpful. And obviously, if you are in a position to leak information to a journalist, leak me shit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there you go, yeah. We love whistleblowers on the trips that are podcast. <laughs> yeah. Exactly.
2: Yeah. What other words work of yours can people well actually first of all because i want to talk a little bit more about your reporting on mass incarceration and some of the other kind of work that you do can you kind of walk us through your passionate projects that you work on i mean i'm assuming you're passionate about all of it but can you walk us through the um
1: yeah so my last job at the marshall project and the job before that at the houston chronicle i was covering prisons um most of texas prisons mm-hmm. now at the la times my beat is covering the sheriff's department um mm. so uh uh, that does include the largest jail system in the country because you know the la jails are the largest jail system in the country as of now so i, I still cover incarceration in that context and i cover a very troubled sheriff's department mm. to say uh, the least yeah
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but
1: yeah. i i'd also covered death row for many years and i had a story in the new york times magazine this year about some guys that played dungeons and dragons on texas death row and oh I no way <laughs> i think there's a chance huh? that ends up like becoming a book at some point so I, I I feel like I might end up still having Death Row be part of my work life for quite mm. some time.
0: Yeah that's yeah if so you haven't if you're listening to this and you haven't read that DD on Death Row article it is truly one of the most powerful pieces of journalism I've ever read. It's yeah. so good.
2: No I'm I'm definitely gonna have to read it right after we hang up and we'll for sure link that below because that's really interesting. I think and obviously you're talking uh Rose passion language right now but <laughs> 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 but I still think I it's say? really cool
0: too.
2: <laughs>
1: did you? What campaign setting did you play in?
0: Me, I, I usually do homebrew, but I've done a lot okay. of Curse of Strahd stuff in Ravenloft. So doing that okay. real dark uh, Eastern European setting is very fun. Yeah. But I yeah. I know so many people now who work in D and D who I sent out your story to so many people because <laughs> I was like, hey, look at this and realize how powerful it is. Go, everyone, read this.
2: <laughs> yeah. What other work can uh, people read of yours? Where can we point people to?
1: Well, I do have one book out actually. Uh, it came out. What was that last year, I guess? Oh no, the year before, because we're in 2024 now. I have a memoir that came out in uh, 2022, uh, Corrections in Inc. But for the most part, um, you can find me on TikTok or Twitter uh, or the site formerly known as Twitter, whatever. Um, <laughs> the hellhole formerly known as Twitter. I'll
0: never call it X. I know, right? Never gonna happen. Right? <laughs> I will dead name one thing and it is Twitter. <laughs>
1: And, uh, and of course, you know, the LA Times, that's where I do most of my work at this point. So, yeah.
0: it's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Carrie. I really yeah. appreciate it. And especially just with all the work that we had done over the past year and getting to speak with you and just kind of like talk about all of it. Very, very appreciative for the work that you have done and continue good to do. Good talking to yeah, you guys.
2: Definitely keep us in the loop and we'll definitely love to have you come back on anytime you have any new projects you want to talk about. All right. Sounds oh, yeah. good. Thank you for listening to the 15th episode of the TripSitter podcast. Be sure to check out Carrie's article linked below along with the rest of her work. While you're in the bio, go ahead and sign up for our Substack and become a premium member if you want to help to support the work we're doing. This episode was hosted by Jay Gordon Curtis and Rowan Zioli. Jay Gordon Curtis is also the producer of this podcast and co-edits it along with Ronilo Villamore. As always, we want to end with a reminder. There's no such thing as a bad drug. They're just chemicals, natural or unnatural, that exist in this world. It's how we use them and how we interact with them that makes the difference. Until next time, have a safe trip.